Yeah, I would say macroeconomics is sort of like the great abyss from which finance <laughs> spontaneously emerges. Yeah, I like that. I like that. So talking about abysses, we were talking about uh, these articles that I've written, um, and uh, I was hoping we could just dialogue about this for a little while and see if a, a topic comes out of it. Because, like I said uh, in the uh, in our chat, you're the only person I've ever met who's interested in neuroscience and in classic weird tale authors like Algernon Blackwood and H.P. Lovecraft, which to me is just incredible. I feel like this is a conversation that uh, I've been looking I've been looking for for a long time, but this is the first time I've actually gotten to have it. So I'm really interested to see where it goes. No one knows, and that's the central theme, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. That there's this theme that uh, I keep circling around um, in a lot of these articles and and a lot of these authors too, these weird tale authors. That um, well, there's this there's this difference between weird tales and any other genre like mystery or horror or fantasy, which is that in a weird tale the mystery is never resolved, and that's purposeful because the 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 feeling the sort of that you get from encountering the mystery itself and from the fact that the the answer, the resolution, might not even be comprehensible to a human being. That's where the ecstasy comes from. That's sort of the orgasmic moment in these stories. Is that moment when you realize, wow, there's no possible way I could understand this. And that's just really. Yeah, that's, it's very difficult to convey that without uh, actually getting someone to read one of these stories. But... Uh, I feel like when someone actually does read one of them, they either really get it or they really don't. And I'm one of the people, and I think you're one of the people who really gets this, gets why it's exciting. I think that's part of the fun in, say, the Jack the Ripper case or the Zodiac Killer, too. People like to exercise their minds trying to figure it out, but there's also a strange satisfaction in knowing that it's very hard to figure out, and it probably won't ever be pieced together definitively. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it is. And uh, even in something like the Jack the Ripper case or the Zodiac Killer, there you've got these clues, and the clues seem to form sort of a coherent picture, but you can't figure out exactly what it is. You feel like you might never really know. And uh, that's another crucial component to a lot of these stories is that there are always clues. There, in a way that you could say that you have to have a little bit of a masochistic bent to read these stories because you know throughout the stories the author is going to give you all these little breadcrumbs. Oh, there was a strange symbol found on this rock. Oh, there's a text that was partially translated. Uh, you know, Lovecraft's The Call of Cthulhu, you could say, is the masterpiece. You know, they've got this idol from the Arctic or the Antarctic, whatever it is. They've got these texts. There are these artists who are reporting dreams. And there are these anthropologists who know of these savage rituals and these policemen down in the, the south in New Orleans who see similar rituals. And everything seems to connect. And then what it finally connects to is this explosion of this bizarre ancient god creature that really has no explanation. And the the, fin the finality of this answer, basically, is all of these clues pointed toward this vast central experience, and the nature of the experience is that it drives people insane and no one can understand it. Right. Uh, many of the stories by Lovecraft, like the case of Charles Dexter Ward, for instance, involve someone who is trying to solve a mystery but on extremely massive scale. 
which just adds to perplexity and to this feeling of being overwhelmed and to the impossibility of ever solving it. Yes, exactly. And that's another topic that I touched on in the article that uh, I sent to you, uh, the fascination of the abomination, and also in my article, The Lure of the Abyss, is that this also seems to be this seems to be a really ancient emotion, this desire to confront a mystery that's maybe older and greater than humankind. And uh, if you look at a lot of rituals from religions throughout the world, you might not even call them religions proper. They're sort of uh, cults, uh, sets of rituals uh, that center on particular sets of beliefs. Uh, we can call them cults in the sense of that they're, they're sets of beliefs and rituals and fetish objects centered on certain topics. And uh, a lot of these, like the one that really springs to mind is voodoo rituals, where people purposefully want to be, uh, they call it ridden, possessed by the spirits of the gods that terrify them most. And so nobody, you know, in these ecstatic voodoo rituals, nobody wants to be ridden by the spirit of uh, the Virgin Mary, for example, which they do believe in, that spirit. But nobody wants to be ridden by that one because it's, it's too peaceful. It's not terrifying. And this is a, a sense that I've experienced it reminds me of a sense that I've experienced a lot in nightmares. You might be able to relate to this, where in your nightmare, you know that there's this terrifying thing that you're not going to be able to contextualize. It's just going to be raw fear and awe. And for some reason, your mind, because that's the most terrifying thing, your mind takes you directly toward that, you know, and then you wake up screaming because that was the only place you could go. It was right into the heart of the thing that terrified you. Because the thing that's the most terrifying is the thing that's the most fascinating. And in that article, there's a quote by Lovecraft. He says, A certain atmosphere of breathless and unexplainable dread of outer, unknown forces must be present, rather than the usual gore and nonsense that we find in a lot of mundane horror. Yes, because these are two inherently different kinds of Fear. One of them I almost hesitate to call fear, the one that we've been talking about. It's more akin, I think, to religious ecstasy, a kind of Dionysian madness. Uh, whereas the traditional horror story and a lot of modern horror films, uh, which I wouldn't even put in the same genre as these kinds of things that we're talking about on the other hand, uh, but a lot of this stuff centers more on emotions of startlement and disgust. And neither of those really has a place in the weird tale, except maybe in as much as the disgust is something primal, like, for example, seeing non-human creatures engage in behavior that we would define as human. Uh, I feel like reading a lot of Lovecraft stories, he has this real fascination with invertebrates. Uh, you know, he has these sentient creatures that he really goes out of the way, out of his way, to describe as looking sort of like, uh, you know, sea anemones or starfish or some kind of uh, totally alien Precambrian sort of uh, invertebrate. And, he, and then he goes out of his way to describe that these things, these creatures, are engaging in behaviors like writing things down in tablets or building temples or making sculptures. And it, he's really trying to get you toward the feeling not of being startled, like, oh, there's a monster or disgusted, like, oh, the monster's doing something gross, it's eating some, somebody, but towards this deeper kind of uh, upsetness, I guess you could call it, this real disturbance of watching this very alien, invertebrate sort of creature behave exactly like something sentient. And it's, Lovecraft actually had a quote 
uh, I can't, I don't have it right in front of me, but he said he always wanted to write stories that would be just as horrifying to a gas-based life form from another galaxy as they would be to a human. Because the idea is that this juxtaposition of, of something totally alien doing something that it shouldn't be doing. And I think that's the real heart of the weird tale. Dagon is a very good example of what you're talking about, because that revolves around this man seeing these things, seeing what is going on under the surface. I much like the call of Cthulhu. He's trying to sort it out, but he, in the end, he's just puzzled and broken, absolutely shattered by the experience as if he had taken a very large quantity of a psychedelic and had no way of assimilating it all. There is definitely that quality to it, which in, in a way is, is really funny because Lovecraft, as far as I know, abhorred intoxication of any kind. I don't think he would have taken a psychedelic if you tried to force it on him. But yeah, a lot of his work definitely has this quality, and it, it goes even more extremely to that extent. Uh, in stories like, you know, the music of Eric Zahn, which is like nothing if not an acid trip. You know, at the climax, you know, the guy throws open the windows of this musician's studio where he's madly playing this unearthly song, and there's just this total uh, chaos swirling around outside. He feels like he's caught up in some kind of, uh, you know, cosmic black hole tornado sort of thing. And uh, so it's like in, in a lot of these stories, whether there's a monster per se or not, you could almost say that the monster is secondary to the point. The point is this cosmic tornado feeling, this whirling vertigo where you lose all sense of context and there's nothing else to do but just participate, just be a witness and be in awe. Beyond the Wall of Sleep, for example. Yes. And that's a personal favorite of mine. You have this uneducated man who is tapped into this source... And it's a source that has been talked about mostly in positive terms. You'll find it in Plato and Tesla, really any of the Neoplatonists and many other mystics. But for Lovecraft, it has it's sort of amoral. He's overwhelmed, he's seeing all these things, but he doesn't really have the intellectual faculties to figure out exactly what's going on. Yes, definitely. And that's a theme that you also find recurring again and again, not just in Lovecraft, but in a lot of the weird tale writers. For example, Arthur Mackin's uh, story, The Novel of the Black Seal, The White Powder, uh, the, white, the White People, which is an incredible example of this, Arthur Mackin's The White People, where the entire story is told through the diary of a young girl. I think she's about 10 years old. And throughout the course of this story, you basically start, she's writing about her nanny sort of playing in the garden with her nanny, and you gradually start to realize that what her that her nanny is some sort of ancient pagan worshiper and is introducing her to these absolutely savage uh, blood rituals from the fairy kingdom. But it's all told in the form of, it's almost like reading Peter Pan or something like that. It's all told from the perspective of this little girl, and it's all told in this very light, childlike tone. And, oh, well, uh, you know, this might be my last entry. Now I'm going to go away with the good people. And that sort of, and it's just horrifying because you have this sense of this juxtaposition of this gigantic, horrific, completely unearthly world with this person who clearly is not mentally equipped to understand it. And there's a suggestion in all of these stories that really none of us are equipped to understand what lies beyond. 
Yes, definitely. And that's what's so horrifying. I think anyone who has spent time, especially in the, well, I suppose in physics, but especially in the biological sciences, because life is everywhere, and we're intimately acquainted with it because we're living beings. But we keep finding out more and more about it. It continues to become more nuanced, more complex, and we realize how little we know. Absolutely. I actually gave a TEDx talk about exactly that topic. Uh, that was my first real serious attempt to unite uh, my love of weird tales and my love of neuroscience. And uh, one of the main topics that I touched on in the talk is that we all have this experience, right, this subjective experience of being inside our own head. And if you ask, you know, how does your mind work? Well, you think, well, I know very well how my mind works. I use it every day. But then someone asks, well, how does your brain work? you realize that you really have no idea. I had an experience where I brought home uh, this, it's called a neuro headset for like 400 bucks. It's probably less now. You can buy this uh, electro uh, electroencephalogram <laughs> EEG headset and you wear it on your head and uh, you can see readouts of your brain activity on your computer screen. And this is really primitive. Well, I was talking about, uh, so this, this electroencephalogram EEG headset it's not like it doesn't have a level of precision of an fMRI, functional magnetic resonance imaging, where you can see a 3D image of your brain and there's this particular region somewhere inside of it and you say, ah, oh, this particular region is activating. Uh, EEG is nowhere near that level of resolution. You're basically just watching electrical fields sweep back and forth across your scalp. And at the same time, though, it's it, happening in real time. You can really watch it change in response to your thoughts. So I had this surreal experience. I was sitting there in the dark in my room with just my computer screen and this headset, and I would try thinking different things. I would think, you know, uh, I believe this, and I would think about something I believe. Or I would uh, just sort of let my thoughts wander. And as I let these things happen, I watched different areas of my brain light up uh, in the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere. They would sort of light up in synchrony and sing to each other. Uh, and it, I, another time I was just sort of letting my thoughts wander and the fields were sort of wandering around aimlessly. And then I don't even remember what I was thinking about, but I connected two thoughts in my head and I had a realization. And at the moment that I had the realization, at that instant, the electrical fields changed shape and concentrated in this particular area and uh, they changed frequency. There was a frequency measurement too. They, they moved up to gamma, gamma band frequency instead of theta band. And so... This is all, again, this is very primitive stuff. Technology has been around since the late 19th century. But still, watching my brain talk to itself in this way, I had this eerie sense that I know what it's like to be me, and I know what it's like to use my mind. I have no idea what my brain is doing. I felt like I was sitting you know, on the prow of a ship watching sea creatures, bioluminescent sea creatures, uh, interact and mate in the water below me and thinking, this is in some way related to me, but this isn't me. This is something other that's generating me, generating the experience of being me. And it ties back to that exact same sense that we were talking about with the weird tales, the, of the individual's mind being confronted by something that's so much larger and so alien that there's no way to intuitively comprehend it. It's just something other. We could do, and uh, it's interesting that it went into gamma, into the gamma range, because that has been long associated with understanding in those aha moments. Exactly, yes. 
and we could make an entire episode about gamma by itself. But as you say in your essay, and you cite both Blackwood and Joseph Conrad, who, although he is not associated with the genre, could be considered in some ways a proto-Weird Tales guy, at least in the Heart of Darkness. Yeah, and or even in the even in the Secret Agent. Yes, exactly. Uh, and in a sense, I would hesitate to even use the word proto because he was working uh, contemporary with a lot of the classic Weird Tale authors, uh, later even than some of them, significantly later than uh, than Arthur Mackin. But uh, there's this quality. Once you start to look for this quality in literature, you start to find it all over the place. And uh, I, I still think one of the greatest weird tale novels that I've ever read was Moby Dick. There's this incredible passage in Moby Dick where Melville talks about, I, I, can't, I don't have it in front of me again, but in this passage he's talking about how the sea, once, when you're above the sea, you sort of know what's going on and where you are. And as soon as you slip under the sea, you're in this totally different universe. And he brings out all these qualities of this alien universe that it's Silent, for example, uh, because at the time the technology didn't exist to pick up things like whale songs and fish clicking to each other. So he says this is a silent world. Nothing speaks to each other. Everything kills and eats and dies in silence. And he says this is a, an emotionless world because biology at the time uh, wasn't advanced enough to be seriously talking about things like you know the cognition of an octopus or of a fish. So he says this is an emotionless world. It's a savage world where the only instinct is just to kill. And it's a differently textured world. Everything is slippery and squishy and slimy. And he, he does an incredible job of conjuring up this, this sense, I think in a sense, in a very akin sense to Lovecraft's images of these invertebrates behaving sentiently. Uh, this, this sense that the sea, although it is what we ultimately came out of, is now a world so alien to us that we can't connect back to it. And I think this is the same thing that Conrad is touching on in Heart of Darkness. Without invoking aliens or trillions of years of time or ancient artifacts or anything like this, just talking about uh, the forest, really, he's invoking this same sense that the natural world is something that we've become so dissociated from that to really face nature itself is an encounter with the other, with the mysterium tremendum. At fascinant, you know, the, the, the tremendous and fascinating mystery at the heart of existence. The vast, terrible jungle or the vast, terrible sea. Yeah. And another piece that would fall under that header is Turn of the Screw by Henry James. Again, you see this uncertainty. And the beauty of the weird tale is the reader has more freedom to draw their own conclusions, because it's this open-ended mystery. And as you say, Henry James is a great example of that. Not, I mean, Turn of the Screw, obviously, would be the, the classic example, but in a lot of his stories, you see these things. And uh, I even read, uh, it was either an interview or an essay that he had written, where he said he really doesn't have an interest in writing ghost stories per se. For him, he writes stories about ghosts, where the ghost signifies something else. Uh, and this is a quality that I recurs in a lot of my favorite writers, Ray Bradbury being another great example. You know, Ray Bradbury doesn't write monster stories or horror stories. Ray Bradbury writes stories where the monster implies something else. And this was, uh, again, a topic that I talked about in that article, The Fascination of the Abomination. I was quoting from uh, my good friend Oren Gray, who is a weird tale author. And, uh, 
<laughs> Bless you. <laughs> in this article, he says, the thing that makes a vampire interesting is not that it will suck your blood, but that it is a vampire at all, that it is a terrorism, a thing outside of commonly accepted possibilities. And uh, this is a, a thing that I think we're kind of circling around here, is this idea that what's really intriguing about the weird tale or about a story like Heart of Darkness or Moby Dick is not so much the, the horror itself, it's about what it implies, this altered state that it gets you to, this more uh, enhanced, deeper way of interfacing with the universe. And uh, this, this ties into another topic that I briefly touch on in The Fascination of the abomination article, which is this uh, ancient Greek thinking about Dionysus, uh, the god, of course, of wine and drunkenness, and, and also of a lot of <laughs> savage rituals where that the Romans ended up banning because women were going out into the countryside and supposedly tearing apart goats with their bare hands and teeth. And I read a fascinating book on Dionysus recently by a German writer whose name I'll have to look up and find. But uh, the, basically what he says, the thesis of this book, is that Dionysus isn't a fertility god per se, which is the way he tends to be described, or was uh, in the early 20th century. He's the god of these moments where life and death intersect. For example, Dionysus was said to be present at the moment of birth. He was said to be present uh, in wild bulls that are in rut, and in panthers, interestingly enough, and in plants, but not all plants, specifically the ivy, the vine, and the grapevine. And all of these things that it, it's different from the idea of, for example, a god or, or a goddess like uh, Demeter or Persephone, where it's about dying and growth and rebirth. Dionysus, by contrast, is specifically the god, this author says, of those moments when life and death intersect. And they remind us, for example, the moment of birth. You can't witness a birth without thinking about death. And it brings together these things in a way that makes us confront reality as it actually is and remember our fragility in the actual scheme of nature. I have a... This has conjured up a few different thoughts in my mind. One is the connection we made earlier between religion and horror. And it doesn't seem like a really obvious one, but when you start to scrutinize the things that most religions talk about, like existing after death in some shape or form, reincarnation or an afterlife, it becomes... It becomes difficult to fathom, and therefore it elicits some fear in a person who doesn't have blind faith in the process. Uh, Lovecraft is often called a misanthist, that in essence we don't live in a moral or even an amoral universe, but one in which these forces are conspiring to just torture us. Yeah. For the joy of it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm also thinking of The House of the Past by Blackwood, and I, did Dunsany write a reincarnation tale? I'm trying to remember if I'm getting them confused. I have someone. Yeah, I haven't read any Dunsany in a very long time, but it's very possible that he did. He is a surprisingly handsome man. I have his photograph here. Yeah, and a war hero, as I recall. Yes. He looks. He remind. He looks a bit like John Cleese with mustache. <laughs> yes, he does. And it's, it's funny. I mean, if you imagine somebody who's just the polar opposite of Lovecraft in every way, Dunsany would be it. I mean, he's the really strapping, like man of 
society. Uh, I think he was really well loved in his own time. And then you know you've got Lovecraft who essentially just wanted to go go back to being a little boy and retreated from anything that that smacked of emotional intensity at all. And yet both of them managed to produce these stories that deal with surprisingly similar themes. The uh, dream cycle stories are Lovecraft said were directly inspired by Dunsinay. Yes, exactly. And it's, there's the, I think it comes back to this fascination with fairy stories. Dunsany was clearly fascinated with them. Lovecraft, I think, grew up with them, too. And both of them were voracious readers. And uh, I think that the thing in Dunsany that seemed to resonate with, uh, with Lovecraft, which he actually talks about in Supernatural Horror and Literature, which is one of my favorite essays, but uh, he talks about Dunsany's tapping into this sort of Anglo-Saxon or Teutonic forest fairiness that, for example, if he contrasts it with, and I don't really think this is a fair contrast because you could find plenty of counterexamples, but with the Mediterranean uh, stories, which he describes as being much more bright and sort of fanciful, and with the Arabian and Arabesque stories, you know, the Thousand and One Nights or the Persian uh, Shahnameh and things like this, which he describes as, again, being very bright and sort of fluttery and silly, which, again, I don't think that's a fair comparison, but he definitely zeroed in on something that is really core to the the Anglo-Saxon and especially the Teutonic soul, which is this almost Wagnerian urge toward self-destruction, you know, to see a, a flaming pyre jump onto it. And I think that resonated very deeply with Lovecraft, and I think that Dunsany tapped into that, couldn't help tapping into that when he decided to create his own Anglo-Saxon-based mythology. And you can even catch hints of this in Tolkien's writing, uh, who had made no attempt to write weird tales, but just by writing an Anglo-Saxon-influenced fantasy world, you know, has these scenes. There's this incredible passage where he just mentions in passing uh, that beneath the mines of Moria, there are deeper passages that even the dwarves don't go into. And it just gives me chills. It's such a Dunsanian or Lovecraftian image. You know, there are the, there are these passages down there that even the deep deep delving dwarves don't go down there. And it's a quality that when you tap into these this type of mythology, this tenor of the Northern European mind, you almost can't help but pick up a little hint of this of the the drums in the deep and these these things sort of that uh, exist outside of the ken of even the wildest fantasy characters. And I love it so much. I think it's what gives a lot of these stories so much color and so much depth, even when the authors don't deliberately intend it. Well, at this point, there are a few different directions we can take it. I'm pretty happy with the recording. I must admit, and oftentimes they go, I mean, they're between 20 to 90 minutes, but I think this would be superb, and it would be a great beginning to a longer series. I would love to do a longer series. As I'm sure you can tell, I could talk about this topic for probably three hours or more, but as you can also see, it's going to tend to wander, because there's just so much in this this cluster of themes. So if you want to leave it as is uh, for this particular recording, I'm totally fine with that, but I'd love to come back to it later. As you said, there are so many more directions that we could go with this.